This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you all for being here this uh, afternoon and for joining us for the Chancellor's Colloquium Distinguished Speaker Series. We are in the fourth season, if you can believe it, time goes by really fast. Um, and we have been successful in bringing leaders in government, agriculture, industry, and higher education to engage our campus community um, on topics which are important to us as an institution, of course, topics important to higher education. Our guests help inform and inspire efforts around issues of pressing concern for the 21st century, Uh, issues such as climate change, environmental and human health, the future of higher education, and of course today, food. We are so pleased to have with us Dr. Brilin Chisunge. I met Brilin at a climate summit in the Netherlands in the fall of 2011, and I was very impressed by her presentation and by the way she engaged the audience and by the way she described her own efforts and the opportunities in South Africa and in Africa in general. And I made a note at the time to invite her to come here, and she reminded me today that it was almost two years ago. <laughs> but we um, managed to have her here. We are so thankful for her um, taking away from her schedule and coming to speak um, to us about her experiences as a farmer in South Africa. Brilin will open with some prepared remarks and then um, will be joined on stage by Dean Mary Delaney, who will talk briefly with uh, Brilin before moderating a question and answer session as we normally do in these lectures. As you know, or for those of you who may not know, Mary is the Interim Dean of the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at UC Davis since August or end of August. September 10. Oh, she remembers that. I guess she counts the days or something um, of 2012. Uh, She has been doing an outstanding job as the interim dean, and um, we are so thankful to have her in this position and uh, for her to accept this responsibility at a time when she was so busy with her uh, other duties as an associate dean and a faculty member. Uh, Mary is an esteemed researcher in her own right, and as I said, providing outstanding leadership not only as an administrator but also as a scientist. So again, thank you for all of that, and thank you for being here today to moderate the discussion. At this point, I'm honored to now uh, formally introduce our distinguished guest, Dr. Brilin Tisunge. Brilin is an internationally acclaimed expert and facilitator of the Nigeria-South Africa Group on Agriculture. She has been a tireless advocate for farmers in her native South Africa for many years, traveling the world to discuss issues such as sustainable agriculture, climate change, and support for women farmers. Brilin is a dynamic and inspiring activist who counts herself among the 70% of farmers who are women in South Africa. Despite the challenges facing women farmers in her country, she was able to buy her own land, and she works as a farmer and breeder of Kalahari red goats, cattle, free-range poultry, indigenous pigs, and most recently, tilapia fish. 
So thank you so much, Brilin, for being here today, and we are looking forward to your presentation and the discussion afterwards. Please come forward. Thank you. Good evening, Chancellor Katei. Good evening, UC Davis. Perhaps I should say good evening, California. <laughs> Thank you, Chancellor Katei, for your warm welcome. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here today and to see so many faces here today. It's such a great honor and privilege from one continent to the other, having traveled 35 hours to get here. It's such a great honor. Thank you. As I stand here before you, it brings me great pleasure to be able to say that we are no longer talking the talk. We are now truly walking the walk. I say this because for so long, I've advocated for a network of knowledge exchange between large organizations and educational institutions. Now I have, over the years, spoken on various global platforms about climate change, supporting women farmers, food security, and community farming. Some of these platforms I've even shared with various world leaders, icons, and decision makers, all with a common goal of feeding our one world. However, none of these give me as much pleasure as being able to share my message with you here at UC Davis, an institution where education is the priority. Without the ability to educate our generation and educate our youth, we as advocates would have no message to deliver. My journey into the world of agriculture began several years ago when I moved back to my native country, South Africa. After having spent 16 years in the United Kingdom, where I had set up and run a successful recruitment company, upon returning to Africa after so long, I was surprised at how often food security and agriculture would come up in the conversations. Whether this took place with a local shopkeeper or a prominent business person in the area, they all seemed to be talking about the same thing, food. Not long after I arrived, I was driven into the playing field by anger at the failure of my contemporaries to see agriculture as a business and to recognize and understand the importance of agriculture and the need for food security. With the global population set to continue, growing over the coming decades, agriculture production is going to have to rise significantly. As a businesswoman, I saw this as an opportunity to start a business within a sector filled with so many opportunities and with a lot of potential. I can tell you now that I have not since looked back since I embarked on this journey. We are living in a in an agriculture industry era, and the youth of today are our 21st century farmers. Farming in the 21st century is more exciting and enthusiastic as it only, only incorporates up-to-date knowledge of farming techniques, but also keeps up with the latest technology and methods of managing a successful and effectively structured business, which would prosper for the benefit of all feeding the one world that we have. Educating the youth of today on the impact that even an emerging farmer can have on a global scale is key to delivering the message that the world needs to be fed. The younger generation need to be enlightened as to the fact that farming is fun and is a profitable business. I'm speaking from experience. 
We live in a world where technology is no longer a luxury, but a necessity. And for many young people, the world farming conjures up to up images of severe manual labor in the middle of nowhere with a little straw hat, with a spade, and possibly donkey for transport. <laughs> My own daughter, who is here today with me, was once guilty of this misconception, but has since come to understand that methods of practice in farming have not remained static while the rest of the world continues to evolve. In sub-Saharan African countries, more than 60% of the population is under 25 years old. Thus, although young people offer a vast potential resource to the agriculture sector, many of them are migrating to cities in search of opportunities, leaving behind an increasingly aging rural population. It is vital and ultimately beneficial for everyone to reverse this trend. More new age farmers are needed to explore and produce newer farming methods and exciting kinds of food in a very smart way. We're better to get innovative technology and practices than with the generation that understands it to be necessity. Farmers have a huge challenge. We have to feed billions of people, and to achieve this goal, we must encourage the youth by educating them, networking, influencing, and allowing them to access, build, and add to their strengths. Growth in the agriculture sector remains fundamental for poverty alleviation, economic growth, and environmental sustainability. The growth includes the ability to grow food and consume it locally. I'm a child of Africa, a continent which I believe will prove to be a great importance and significance in feeding the world in our tomorrow. The continent does, however, face the triple challenges of poverty, unemployment, inequality. That's making its journey towards a better tomorrow a very difficult one. There are, however, opportunities in existence for Africa to lift itself out of this triple dilemma. And one of these is through effective management of its abundant natural resources that are still very much untapped. This is a defining time in Africa's development trajectory when all the economic indicators are showing signs of a rising continent. Rural poverty in sub-Saharan Africa calls for innovative solutions that will enable poor rural people to harness new opportunities to regenerate economic growth. It is necessary to create policies that develop disadvantaged rural areas as well as focus on the gender and youth dimensions of smallholder agriculture enterprises. There is a compelling need to explore the ways in which investment in Africa's agriculture sector could spark wide economic development across the whole continent. It is believed that the potential cannot be understated. By bringing together state and non-state actors, as well as other stakeholders, it is possible to leverage the recognized resource endowment that Africa possesses. I'm keen to see greater movement towards community-managed farms, particularly in the rural areas. Focusing on community farming would directly strengthen community-level action. Communities play a large role in agriculture, supporting each other. Via this channel, they produce high-quality, locally-grown, organic products that they grow.
Community agriculture provides a comprehensive approach to the following, reducing the carbon footprint, cut costs of buying highly priced imported foods, enables locals to buy fresh organic produce directly from the farmer from at the farm gate, cutting out that man that I described as he needs his legs chopping off the middleman. <laughs> it stimulates local economic activities through social enterprises. It protects local environmental resources and the land, the priceless arable land that we have. Community farming can have a positive impact on a country's economy, which can include pulling its citizens out of the poverty. With pressure on agriculture production set to rise by 70% by 2050 to feed world's growing population, community farmers and emerging farmers in particular will need to start farming now. If we have any hope of meeting the substantial demand for food production that we'll be facing over the next 40 years. According to a report, profound changes in agriculture markets are giving rise to new and promising opportunities for smallholder farmers in developing countries. As a result, farmers will have more incentives to boost their productivity, but helping them to get access to these markets and increase their negotiating power is key to achieving this goal. We also need to work towards providing farmers with support to make their farm, farming systems more productive, more sustainable, and more resilient. Using resources efficiently and adapting to the effects of climatic and other unpredictable variables will be hallmarks of smart farming in the coming decades. Substantial and sustained investment focused on young farmers are essential to motivate them to remain on the farm and to nurture their energies and amb ambitions in their endeavors. It is time to look at poor smallholder farmers in a completely new way, not as charity cases, but as people whose innovation, dynamism, and hard work will bring prosperity to their communities and greater food security to the world in the decades to come. We are all aware that climate change will have a massive impact on food availability, accessibility, and food system stability across the whole world. We are talking about an increased risk of crop failure, loss of livestock, an impact on food markets, and food security on a local and household level. With Africa relying on rain-fed agriculture, Farmers are highly vulnerable to changes in climate variability. Seasonal shifts, precipitation patterns, hereby affecting the agriculture process. Small-scale and homestead farmers in dry lands are most vulnerable to climate change. But the interesting thing is they are the ones who are not actually creating the damage to the climate, but they are the ones who are the most vulnerable. So not only do we need to educate people on the benefits of farming, we also need to educate them on any available alternatives for them to be able to handle the unexpected that this weather in agriculture. Although farming is historically and presently at the moment a male-dominated industry, it is known that women everywhere play a key role in producing food and ensuring food security for their families. This is especially true within the developing world where women are literally the backbone of the rural economy. 
However, they only receive a small fraction of land created inputs, for example, your fertilizers and seeds. They get very minimal of that. Agriculture training and training in comparison to their male counterparts, giving the impression that a woman's productivity and yield in farming is not a great, is as great as a man's. According to reports, women comprise of approximately 43% of the agricultural labor force in developing countries and account for about two-thirds of the world's 600 million poor uh, livestock keepers. Of those women in the least developed countries who report um, being economically active, 79% report agriculture as their primary source of livelihood. These women would typically work longer hours than men, taking into consideration paid productive and unpaid domestic responsibilities. Women tend to be employed for labor-intensive skill uh, tasks, generally in lower wages than men, for example, in the casual agriculture labor market in Africa, women's casual wages, whether cash or in kind, are usually half of men's wages. To all the women here today, I say to you, just imagine being paid $50 for doing a job and producing results which are most probably, if not identical or higher, than the men sitting next to you who then gets $100 for the same job that you get $50 for. This all stems back to a generation when a woman's place was to maintain the household whilst the man had the duty to feed the household. Although these views have somehow, somewhat changed over the years. In Africa, it has been considerably slower to bring those changes. I must admit that even my own parents still follow this way of living. My, my father's role is and has always been to provide for the family. In his eyes, my mother has no business making a living. He considers, my mom, he, considered, he considers any money that my mom makes for herself in her own right to be her pocket money from a hobby that she does. Likewise, my mother is perfectly happy to embrace this role as the mother who looks after the household, while as my father is incapable of this. A recent conversation with my mother, with <laughs> a recent conversation with her, enlightened me to the fact that she has serious doubts about his ability to find the necessary ingredients to make a cup of tea, <laughs> including the milk that's sitting in the fridge. <laughs> As a result, you can imagine the particular challenges that rural African women face in their fight against poverty. They have all the necessary tools, their ability the endurance, the intelligence, yet their progress is hindered by outdated cultural beliefs and obstacles to having equal access to productive resources and services or employment opportunities as men. Empowering and investing in rural women has been shown to significantly increase productivity, reduce hunger and malnutrition, improving rural livelihoods. A child lacking the necessary nutrients to grow, as you all know, research has shown that an empty stomach produces nothing in classroom. And for the students that are here, I'm sure you feel it, that if you don't have a meal before you go to the classroom, you get there, your sugar levels are very low, you have not been well fed, and the professors can vouch you produce zero in class. So a child needs to be fed. That's the brain fuel, and it starts in the food. But not just food. It's got to be a well-balanced diet with all the nutritional uh, values added to it. 
Today, in cultures where women are seen as the inferior sex, there are barriers to stop women from owning and inheriting land. Because of cultural attitudes, discrimination, and a lack of recognition for their role in food production, women enjoy limited to no benefits from extension and training in new crop varieties and technologies. Using myself as an example, I own just over a thousand acres worth of land where I breed and produce, as the Chancellor already said, Kalari red goats, which is a special breed of goat, which is uh, disease resistant and also keyed twice a year. It's very well known for its attributes as being very maternal as well. And I'm actually a registered breeder on the Breeding Association in South Africa. I also own the Nguni cattle, which is a local cow, which is also a hardy type, also again known for its attributes, that you don't have to be vaccinating it and dipping it and doing all sorts of things that you do with your Brahmins and all these other type of cattle. And it's also known for its skin, which is of um, value, which has more value than the meat itself. Again, also a registered animal, which has got repeated patterns on it. I also have indigenous pigs, which are beautiful, and they all roam on the, or they all walk. I, I have developed the farm to say I don't institutionalize any animal on the farm. Everything is free range. You are free to do what you want. So your pigs, your goats, your chickens, under just one condition, that I do not carry passengers on my farm. If you're a goat, you need to produce. If you're a pig, you've got to produce. I cannot afford to give you rent-free accommodation, give you my water, no, to the market. That's where you go. <laughs> I'm very proud of my achievements to date, but it has been an uphill struggle in establishing myself as a farmer. I've had to break through, break down barriers and fight off stereotypical views to emerge as a serious contender in the farming business. The journey hasn't always been an easy one, but as a typical, as is typical to a woman, I persevered and prevailed. My goal now is to see greater female representation within the industry at my level and beyond. I've summed it up to say, what is the way forward? How do we ensure that increasing public and private investments in Africa's agriculture sector provide greater results for smallholder farmers than in the past? Engender national policies that would encourage large numbers of smallholder farmers to farm and to do so in ways that are more productive, more sustainable, and more resilient to climate change and other unpredictable variables. A commitment to improving the skills of smallholder farmers and highlighting the opportunities created as a product of Africa's young and better educated rural population. Examine what is required for this new generation of women and men to lead the future growth of African agriculture. It is known that women everywhere play key roles in providing, in producing food and ensuring the food security of their families. As a result, it is important to examine the particular challenges that rural African, African women face in their fight against poverty. From the perspective of poverty reduction, it is also important to highlight the importance of the non-farm rural economy. My message to you all, about, to, to you all today is about education and awareness. We have done a lot of research. A lot of work has gone into all this. 
but now we can only do so much work, so much research. But how do we translate all the wonderful work that you're doing to where it's most needed? Educating the younger generation to become more active in the world of agriculture, educating the less fortunate in the rural communities to give them the tools necessary to provide them for themselves and feed themselves, and to be able to sell surplus and to recognize it as a business. Educating the world about climate change and the effects it will have on our ability to feed ourselves. Empowering women in agriculture. I'm sorry to all the men that I'm having to say to the women, but you know that a woman is the driver. If you give more power to the women, everything gets sorted. And I'm only here today because you've got a woman who is in the driving seat. I would have turned it down. <laughs> in a nutshell, just to give you a little background about myself, I'm a farmer. I don't normally like to do this. That's not what we do on the farm. On the farm, we farm. We don't talk. We don't sit. We get up very early in the morning, and we sleep very late. I've said earlier that if anyone can convince me or convince my goat that it's Sunday today, you don't eat, it's a day off, then great, we can all have day offs on Sundays. But nobody is yet to do that. Perhaps with the, the research that you're doing, <laughs> attenuate the gene then, and try and see if you can manipulate it and get a goat to understand that Sunday is a day off. i would be great to have that information. It has been a very long, painful journey and lonely. I've had interactions with some of you. We've had dinner. I've gone to your uh, student farms. Very impressive stuff. I'm really, really impressive. Impressed by all the hard work that you're doing. But we've got this disconnect between the urban, the state actors, the politicians, research institutions, and the real place where knowledge is needed. I had an interesting conversation earlier with a lady when we were talking about cell phones. And I say to her, there are no cell phones in the rural areas. She said, there's no cell phone? And I said, yeah, there are no cell phones. That's a luxury. And moreover, there's no network. So how do we now, with all the wonderful work you're doing, how do we translate it to my grandmother who is in the village? No TV, no radio, no newspaper, poor roads. How do we now communicate all this information to say, Grandma, the first drop of rain does not mean put your seed down. Things have changed. How do we do it? I've been looking for answers. And only today, when I went to the, um, to the, to the university uh, food garden, I learned something which really struck my heart and brought tears to my, ear, to my eyes, that here at UC Davis, my dream has finally come true where you are actually bringing kindergartens, five-year-olds, to teach them and let them experience all this. I've asked a question. I was in Vietnam. How many of us, I'll ask the same question to you also today, how many of us in this room can put their hands up and say 2050, which is 40 years from now, will be there and still very active? How many of us are going to be there? How old will you be? How old are you going to be? Will you still be able to do things that you're doing now? Maybe not. 
We only in this situation today because the past has not prepared us. So why are we not preparing the five-year-olds? In 2050, they'll be our age group. They are the future generation. Let them grow up knowing that they need to grow more food, they need to build more hospitals, they need to improve the road systems and uh, all sorts of things because the population is growing. So why not prepare them? Why do we not advocate for them, but only to say, here at UC Davis, and I would like to just take my hat off to you and say congratulations, keep up the good work, and I think let us, let us spread it. And exchanging knowledge at platforms like this, I think it's actually a wonderful thing. Like I said, I traveled 35 hours to get here and discovered quite a lot of you have not actually been to Africa, including the Chancellor herself. She said to me, oh, I haven't been to Africa, and I thought, well, it's there, the continent is there. It's beautiful, it's untapped, but there's a lot of pain that you'll experience when you get there. You've got subsidies here. Well, apparently I discovered also one thing, that there are not that many subsidies in California, but a lot of places, there are a lot of subsidies and so forth. But where I'm coming from, there are no subsidies. There are no institutions. Institutions exist on papers, but in reality, you've got to look after yourself. I'm only successful today because I looked up to people who have the knowledge and the skills, the white farmers. They've been farming for millions and millions of years, and we haven't been doing that. So for me to be where I am today, I had to seek help. And I've been saying education is the power that you need to drive this industry if we've got to be serious about it. Recently in South Africa, we just witnessed a weather change, snow, Hailstones the size of a tennis ball just falling from the sky and we're wondering what is going on. My neighbors, 86 and 88-year-olds, they said it's the first time in their life that they've actually witnessed something like that. These are warning signs. These are telltale signs about serious climatic change. So if we don't brace ourselves and prepare ourselves, we are all going to be in trouble. This one common denominator that we have, the stomach, it needs food. And if we don't all hold hands and say, how do we achieve it? How do you translate what you're doing here to the communities to get them to be able to grow the food sustainably, well-balanced, nutritious, and make a business out of it? There is a business that you can make out of it. To the students, if you're wondering what you're going to do when you finish your courses, whatever the course is, get into agriculture. There's a business there. And you won't look back, trust me. If you fall short of it, please come and see me. I'll give you my details and you can see. Come and join the wagon. There's a lot of opportunity in the agriculture industry. Food, we can never sell enough. We can never have enough. But we need the markets. We need the knowledge. We need the help. If there are people from the financial institutions, please don't give the money to the governments. They use it for their political mileage. Don't give it to financial institutions. They use it for their bank balance. Bring, us, bring it to the farmers. We will know what to do with it, and we'll use it and we'll grow food for all of you. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you so much, and I have said, this is UC Global Davis. That's what I've called it. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, dear audience, hello out there. 
Um, so the way that this is going to work is I'm going to ask uh, a few questions, uh, and then we're going to open it up to the floor um, for questions from you all. So this gives you an opportunity to gather your thoughts and think about what you might want to ask. Thank you so much. That was very inspiring and heartwarming, and I think much food for thought. Thank <laughs> you. I have one sort of inconsequential question that uh, I'm wondering, have you named your farm? I did not name it. Uh I inherited a name that was there, and I fell in love with it. And you won't believe what it's called. It's called El Paso. (laughs) (laughs) It's called El Paso, and um, I fell in love with the name, Uh so it's truly special, and I think it connects me with this continent. Uh Very good. Thank you. Very good. I think another question that uh, probably everybody in the audience uh, might want to ask you, males and females both, um, young people, middle-aged, and people who have seen a lot of life, is really just how did you do it? How did you really do it? How did you get from, you know, a situation where your family sounds somewhat traditional to a woman of uh, substance from Africa? Mm-hmm. Well, um, like I said earlier on, I was in England for 16 years and uh, went to school in England and to various universities also in Europe. And I ran a very successful business in England, a recruitment company. And I started off uh, running a a business and I knew how to make money. And I said to myself, if I can be successful in England, surely I can make a business and I can survive anywhere in the world. So then I decided to go back to Africa. When I got there, Africa was very beautiful, but very painful. Then I realized there was an opportunity to actually make money. And the only way to make it was in the food sector I don't know if you know the old saying to say you follow where the cash is. Mm-hmm. So I followed it. I saw it and I thought, well, there is cash. I'm going to go for it. So mm-hmm. I went for it. Did you return to the community where your family lived or did you settle somewhere else? I, um, interestingly enough, uh, the place where I ended up buying a farm is where my great-grandmother was born in Kalinan, a place where the world's famous diamond came from that's sitting on the Queen of England's crown. That's um, just 10 kilometers from that uh, Kalinan Diamond Mine, and that's where my great-grandmother originally came from. Mm -hmm. So perhaps it's an ancestral draw. So I've ended up there and and working very closely with the communities that are there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we will open it up to questions from the audience. You know, the technology we know is there. What to do? Is the resources... Where are we going to get resources? That's the challenge. And uh, to make resources, South Africa has to generate wealth mm-hmm. in excess of its needs. Mm-hmm. Or you get wealth from Clinton Foundation or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Have you given thought how to find resources to do the work we need to do, like irrigation, building roads, telecommunication. Luckily, this, uh, you know, cell phone, you don't have to build, bury the lines and carry the information. You can go from tower to tower and uh, you can leapfrog. So that's my question. What is the resource I find is a very challenging problem in that continent. Mm -hmm. 
um, resource in its broader sense or resource in financial resource? Oh, financial. Thank you. We know how to build canals and mm. we know how to build roads. Mm-hmm. Well, why I said resources, because then if you think about it, it's in abundance in Africa. We've got the human capital. The only thing that's missing, and which is a challenge, is the finance. But the finance is not even missing. It's somewhere. And we just need to get it. Like I said earlier, it goes to the government, and the government uses it for their political mileage, and it doesn't actually get to the people who need it. And if it does get to the people who need it, they haven't got the knowledge of what to do with it. There's more than enough that we can actually do on the continent ourselves to actually generate enough wealth to be able to um, to get money into agriculture, for example. How come we can effectively manage the girls' best friends so well? I mean, the diamonds. And we've got these pipelines flowing with this thing called oil. We can do that. We're going down drilling, and that equipment is worth billions of dollars. But when it comes to food, why can't we translate all that, move it from that, and put it towards food. But we are busy destroying the, the, the environment. There's more than enough for other things, but there's never enough for agriculture. So perhaps it's time we start taking stock and try and see how we can best do it. I know the world, a lot of countries are owing a lot of money. I know America has also gone to China to borrow money. President Obama came in, the first place he went to, Great Wall of China. So you find there is someone somewhere out there who's holding on to all the cash and everything. But then that cash, they come into the countries and they use it for other things, mining and uh, all sorts of things. But uh, perhaps it's more now awareness that's needed. Like you rightly say, we've got the knowledge. We know what we can do. We know what works. We certainly know what will not work. But how do we now get the finance to actually use for all these things? It's a multi-million dollar question that I cannot even answer you. That's the only street. But it's there somewhere. But that's where we need every one of us to say no to certain things and then stream it to agriculture. And interestingly enough, in agriculture, you don't need that much money, actually. You don't. I've developed systems on my farm from my own money and very successful, and I've put systems in place that even a person from the street can actually do, like mobile chicken houses as opposed to the fixed houses, and then you supplement their feed with the grass and uh, little worms and so forth that they can eat, and you reduce your budget on your um, on, on, on the amount of feed that you buy. And also developing my fish farm, I had to think through it. A cow eats 30 kgs of feed to get one kilo, a goat eats between 13 and 14 kilos to get one kg. A fish only eats 1.2 to get one kg. So the economists in the house, if you do your figures, what would you rather do? So it's also the knowledge that we need. Education is power, like I keep saying, that if you know what to do, you can actually do it and you can achieve it. At a smaller scale, start small and build it up from there. In Africa, for example, each household, you've got at least about five hectares. And of those five hectares, use three hectares for your own food and then the two hectares for the market. It has been achieved in the past, but I don't know why we are failing now. Thank you. Hi, uh, madam. It's like I'm, I have this question about like 
do you think the mode of agriculture in California is like universally applicable, like all over the world? Like, can you just introduce what how we like do agriculture here to South Africa or other places in the world where you have to do something with that? Because there might be some like conflicts about cultural like diversity or other issues. Like, what do you think may be the biggest difficulty when you are doing something like? cross-country exchange program in agriculture? Well, um, your, your model of agriculture here is, uh, that's why you heard me say, perhaps we should call this not UC Davis Global, but UC Global Davis and take it out. It's one of the models that I've actually, in the last few days that I've been here, have said if this can be adopted elsewhere, it would work very effectively. And like I say to you, taking knowledge to the people, because half the things we don't know, but if you bring the knowledge to us, then um, we can achieve it and we can adapt into the systems that you're doing. So um, it's a very interesting model. I've learned a lot in the last few days. And uh, going back in history, in fact, I bought a, a book by Kate, uh, is it Kate, Kate, Kate Anders. Tending, there's a book I bought today. What was Kate Anderson, I don't know if she's here today, but a wonderful book. I just had a little glimpse of it, and then I actually went out and bought the book. And it goes back where in time to the 18th century, where I was looking at that, the history of California, and I'm actually going to take it, and I'm also going to spread the message. So I'm going to take what you're saying, and I'm going to take it to Africa and use it for what you've done in California, which is remarkable and which is very good. Uh, genetically engineered uh, agricultural products, crops, to play a big role in uh, the, uh, helping the smallholder farmers in South Africa? Very much so. Wrong question to a scientist. My background is molecular medicine and biotechnology. <laughs> so, so genetics is my game. <laughs> And uh, often a lot of people, they have not understood as a scientist when we say to them, there's a tomato, let's do a bit of DNA manipulation and let it last for six weeks or six months on the shelf as opposed to six hours on the shelf. And uh, it's, uh, it's again the knowledge that we need to plant into people to say, look, if we do this, it's just empowering people with the knowledge. If we educate them to say, look, instead of having it and having your tomatoes getting rotten and so forth, if we do this, we can actually make it last and it's also profitable. So um, I think with the newer generation, like I said, 60% now is uh, 25 year olds and under. So if we can, they are the, the few they are the change makers. So we're looking up to the youth now to bring all those changes. And uh, it will certainly help in uh, you know, uh, growing more resilient crops and so forth and uh, using less pesticides and everything, which will actually help. I was saying to uh, our soil scientist earlier that I've actually had my whole entire map, uh, my whole entire farm mapped. I know exactly what I can grow on my farm. I know what's lacking. I know how much nitrogen I've got to put. But then that's only me. But what about everybody else? So it's actually now saying, how do we now get it to the rural setting and say to them, genetically modified food or let's do genetical engineering 
it's the education that's needed in more cooperatives, which they used to have in the past, but somebody has killed those cooperatives. But I think it's that man called the middleman because he didn't want uh, us to be uh, prosperous. So he wanted to get the big commercial farmers to be benefiting because any buyer, if you can't guarantee them produce, they're not interested in the small-scale farmer. But if we can now create uh, central uh, hubs where a farmer can get the knowledge and then give them that knowledge to say, look, if uh, you use this seed, it's a better quality seed and this is what you can achieve from it, then it will be truly helpful. Mm. Uh, Charlie? Have you considered starting a student farm of your own? That is... You have a wealth of knowledge, and in terms of the good of the country, you could multiply that knowledge by training some young people, having interns on your farm, and let them then go out and start their own and multiply what you have learned many fold over. Thank you for that question. We actually had a discussion last night about it. <laughs> and uh, I was actually saying I'm going to look at the red tap that's involved. If there's nothing, then my farm <laughs> is open to that. Because what I had established on my farm is to empower women more than anything else. But now, after having come here and exchanging information and the interest and the enthusiasm, I've got more than enough space and more than enough land where actually we can actually do some programs for students. And I'm definitely going to come back to you on that one. I'll go again and knock on that big door that I talked about and just say to them, this is a must, we've got to do it. And that's the only way we can actually help each other as well. It's a very good idea. We talked about it last night as well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, too, am a farmer, and I thank you for your presentation today. Uh, in the last two years, I've participated in the USDA AID Farmer to Farmer program, gone to East Africa each of the last two years. What do you see that program for the future? Do you see it playing a role in, in uh, expanding participation of technology? Um, well, I'm not so sure about the program because uh, I, uh, I didn't participate in it, but I'm actually happy to hear that you were saying there was a farmer-to-farmer -farmer program because the ones that I've participated in, which are global conferences, I've only been the one farmer. This is my fourth continent that I've now visited. I've been to Europe, to the Netherlands, in, um, I mean, to Europe, yes, and I've been to Vietnam, and I also participated in the global conference in South Africa on that platform. And all the time, I'm the only farmer that is there, and I've been calling to say, why do we not have farmers to come in one room, and then you policymakers come together with us? Because some of the things that you are actually talking about, perhaps they're already being practiced on the ground by farmers, so um, if, it follows, if it is followed through, there's no reason why it shouldn't work. But then again, it's a lot of these things that we start, but we never follow them through. So now I've had enough of these conferences and everything, and I said, after all, the world's, most of the world's breakthroughs were only achieved by a handful of people. So this is just a handful. You see, Davis, you are the handful so why not then take it to the next stage and uh, ensure that it works? 
it's up to us to make sure that it works. So hopefully, yes, it should work because there are lots of telltale signs now that uh, this whole climate change that we've been hearing for years and years is real and it's true. Because even uh, your weather here, I was told that this is the middle of the winter, kind of, but I was thinking, is it winter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I was thinking, why is it not that cold? But obviously, the weather patterns have also changed and so forth. So maybe it's also wake-up calls and uh, it's up to you and I to follow it through and I would like to hear more about it and let's follow it through and let's ensure that it works Okay, there was a question here for a while I've worked with many African women and they're very powerful people they're Thank you. for what they've done Thank you. and I would like to know what is the role of women's groups within Africa um, because I know in Kenya alone um, the National Council of Women was an umbrella organization for about 30 women's groups where do you see that going um, in helping with the farming and everything else? Because they are the women that are back on the farms and farming. Well, like I said earlier, that uh, with time now, we're beginning to see women also emerging as very powerful and not uh, listening too much to this whole male-dominated industry and uh, standing up for themselves. And you find uh, the man in Africa, the more money he has, the more cattle he has, it means more women and more children. So you find there's so many lonely women now, and it's actually getting, it's actually a wake-up call for a woman. So you find groups such as the ones you're talking about, it actually gets women to now exchange information, exchange the knowledge, and they have to say, look, what do we do to get the child to school? Because they've got quite a few children, some of them four, five, or six children on average. And they need to feed those children. They need to send them to school. The husband has gone maybe town to the cities to say they're looking for a job, but they know it's not so much a job. Maybe they're looking a job to have more children. So that's what they do most of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they leave you there with the children. So I think uh, exchange platforms and so forth is getting women to wake up to, the, to reality, to say you can't just sit there and wait. So um, we're encouraging a lot of that. And I'm, that's one of the things that I'm really doing and traveling the continent, traveling everywhere to actually call out to say we need to push more of that to the women. And I'm already employing a lot of women on the farm as well. And even the fish farming that I'm doing is women that are going to be driving it. And you find women are actually more thorough than men are. And also, I've summed up a woman as a worker, as an organizer, as a multitask manager, as an advocate, and above it all, she's a negotiator. She would get her best price at the market. A man would just go there and say, oh, it's enough for a pint of lager. Okay, okay. And they sell it just as long as it's enough for a pint of lager. But a woman, she will stand there and she will negotiate until you give in. So you find that's one thing that we are gifted with as women. So I think more power to us, more food on the table, and children, I'll ensure a child goes to school, and you are fed as well. So uh, it's, um, it's a, a wonderful initiative, and we're beginning to see an emerging growth of that, but not as at an accelerated rate that we'd like to see. It's still very slow. It's coming on, but uh, very slowly. There's one, one question back there. How would you propose to advise the um, very powerful African leaders with whom you obviously um, meet often, given the um, slides whizzing above your head? How would you propose to advise them with respect to the extraordinary um, grabs of land in Africa by foreign powers at the moment for agriculture? 
Well, my advice to them recently was uh, please don't grab the land first. Can you grab the skills and bring the skills to us? Because there is a real serious challenge and reality. In South Africa, we started a program where uh, the president of the country, as a citizen of the republic, we have gone out to the communities and started empowering the communities. He leaves his suit and tie in the state house. And we get out onto the ground, he gets his hall and he gets his gumboots on and his overall and we actually go out to the people and we say, right, as a citizen and let's do projects which are for the communities and the communities are actually the beneficiaries of these projects. So what we've done is partnered up with uh, seed companies so they bring and donate seeds and people will come and donate fertilizer. But what we've done is say to them, okay, here's the seed, here's the fertilizer and here's how you do it. Next time round... We'll give you the following time round. You've got the knowledge. You now come and buy the seed and you should actually start working for yourself. So we have started putting programs in place that are sustainable, sustainable programs. And a lot of the times it's who do we surround ourselves with as leaders? We surround ourselves with people who come and lie to us and say everything's all right out there. Until when you get out there and see that there's a lot of land lying fallow. That's when it's a wake-up call and you see that you need food and one day you're going to retire from your seat and you're going to go and join that train as well where there's poverty. And, uh, of course, it's a wake-up call now. They're having, like, a lot of... Um like in South Africa, well, in Southern Africa, the SADC community, which is the Southern African uh, development country communities, they now, alongside their political meetings, they now have started actually also doing uh, um, agricultural uh, meetings where they're talking. But now at personal, individual levels, I'm dealing with quite a lot of uh, presidents and uh, a whole lot of decision makers where we do like a more a personalized approach to it so that in understanding on the president himself, he is a better man to then go and manage the people on the ground. In the minute that the minister and the agriculture sector find that the president is taking time to go onto the field, they they now stop lying to them because they now know that the president knows the truth. So we're seeing a little bit of a turnaround change and so forth. But of course, he doesn't have time. They've got more of these political issues to deal with. But um, we are knocking a lot of sense into them. Believe me, trust me, I am knocking a lot of sense into them. If you do come to South Africa, I will take you to some of the projects that the president is doing. In fact, we'll send you invitations to some of the initiatives that we started and say, come along. So if you're around, you can come and join us. Uh, let's try over here. We haven't hit this side of the room. I think your theme is real important. That is how to get information to the farmer. Uh, historically, in the United States, our extension program was connected to the university. And a big difference in Africa is extension is mostly done through the ministries, and there's quite a disconnect. So our, our African colleagues who are scientists at the African universities have quite a bit of knowledge, but they actually have quite a bit of frustration. They don't have... the they can't get that knowledge themselves to their own farmers because mm -hmm. uh, they really are not giving the extension resources. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts about is that something that needs to change in terms of getting information from African universities to the farmer? Right. That's a very interesting question. And um, like I said earlier about your programs that you started with the kindergartens, if you look around now, there's no place on the continent where there's no school whether it's under a tree, under a bridge, in a classroom, or wherever. So my, 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 my view on that is why not 
take it and put it in a classroom is in a, a part of the curriculum for the little ones and that's they are the best messengers into the community and uh, they listened to more than us adults if I was to come to you today and say look let's grow a tomato this is how you do it you most probably try it a couple of times but the little one if they come and say do it do it you can do it even 50 times and they'll not let go until you've done it and you'll be completely focused and zeroed on this little person telling you how to do it so they're the best messengers into the community and they're the drivers for it all and educational institutions like yourselves I believe there's about almost 30,000 now students that you've got and each one of those students represent 30,000 in the community so they are the best messengers and uh, it's actually very important to now focus and zero in into educational establishments because that's the only other way we can actually do it effectively and get the messages across like I said that's one thing that's now missing we've got all the knowledge we know how it works we certainly know what will not work but how do we now translate it to the communities, to the rural setting where they most need it? So this is the awareness that we're now carrying around to say, how do we get out there and get it out and do it? But then again, it goes to a question earlier about these leaders. I've challenged them and said, look, how come they can effectively set up polling stations in the most remote areas? Ballot boxes get there. So why can't we get seed banks there? And those polling stations call them farmers' polling rolls. And each farmer can go there and they can get one seed, which is a central seed, and we can guarantee quality and uniformity and all that. Why can't we do it? And I've called politicians state actors. Before they assume state positions, they tell us they're going to bring tractors, they're going to make sure this, they're going to make that. Immediately they assume these state positions, they cease to represent the constituencies that they're drawn from. They forget completely there's a complete disconnect, which we now need to bridge that and say, right, if you can get the Fortress Row going and get every 10 kilometers, you can do it. Why can't we do every 10 kilometers for information, for central seed banks, distribution of fertilizers and so forth? So it's, uh, it's those kind of things that we're also trying to now advocate for to say, why, 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 let's do it. And uh, you know what? They don't like to be exposed that leopard suit that they're wearing under this straight jacket, they don't want it seen. So the minute you start talking, you start seeing them shaking a bit as well and changing. So we, I'm working on that. Thank you so much for mm. taking the trip here to mm -hmm. meet with us for just a very, you know, too short of a period of time. We <laughs> hope that we'll be welcoming you back to UC Davis, and we hope many in the audience will come and visit you. But thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.